Welcome everyone to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast. Today's episode is the Mill Creek Sci-Fi Collection Part 2, where we're going to be reviewing films 11 through 20 of the Sci-Fi Collection. So I'm reviewing them in chronological order. So today we'll be looking at the films starting with Crash of Moons, 1954, The Snow Creature, 1954, Menace from Outer Space, 1956, Warning from Space, 1956, The Wild Women of Wongo, 1958, She Gods of Shark Reef, 1958, Hercules Unchained, 1959, Teenagers from Outer Space, 1959, The Wasp Woman, 1959, and The Incredible Petrified world 1959 so this is part two of a five-part review of the mill creek sci-fi 50 movie collection um i put i put link in the show notes for all the products discussed uh, specifically the mill creek uh, sci-fi collection so you can check that out if you want to click on the link go buy it on amazon um, and of course, links to the movie database pages that I've referenced and the Wikipedia pages that I've referenced. As in the first part of the review, um, I'm going to be using a rating system, uh, the what's the verdict system for me, and it's either skip it, watch it once, or rewatchable. And that's it. So first movie up, Crash of Moons, 19. 19- 54. So release date, July 10th, 1954. Runtime, 78 minutes. Budget, who knows? Distributed by, don't know. Okay, this is one of those Rocky Jones weekly serials that's put out as a movie. Now, I could not watch another one of these things. There's a few of these in this collection. I couldn't do it. I wanted to watch it, but I, I just couldn't do it. If you feel like you want to go watch it, um, I think they're all in the public domain, so you can actually go to archive.org and look for it yourself and go watch them. Um, not for me, though, so the verdict on this is skip it. Okay, next movie. That was easy. Um, we go to The Snow Creature, 1954. So released November sometime, 1954. Runtime, 69 minutes. Love it. Budget, don't know. Distributed by United Artists. Cradled within the arms of the rivers Ganges and Brahmaputra to the south, and the mysterious plateau of Tibet to the north, majestically stands the mightiest mountain range on the face of the earth, the Himalaya. So the moviedatabase.org had this plot summary. A botanical expedition to the Himalayas captures a yeti and brings it back alive to Los Angeles, where it escapes and runs amok seeking food. Eh, that's not the whole story, but that's fine. That's good enough as a starting point. Um, Wikipedia has a longer explanation. I don't really want to read it all. It's, it's got a lot of junk in here you don't need to care about. But yeah, that's basically it. So there's a botanical expedition. They go to the Himalayas. Um, they're looking for ex like plants for medicines. It's very altruistic. And then they, um, at some point during the expedition, they realize that 
this folklore of a snow creature may be true and they change their plans and then they they capture it and bring it back to los angeles fine so here are my thoughts on this film this film is heaped with notions of colonizers versus savages with american exceptionalism and white superiority so it's colonizers versus savages a glorious american botanical expedition to the himalayas to discover the undiscovered super plants that will cure diseases and make us all rich and the local savages who are too uncivilized to exploit the plants themselves it's science versus superstition the expedition is there for the highest calling that of exploiting nature for wealth and the locals are too blinded by folklore about a mythical snow creature to see the business opportunities waiting to be exploited. Also a theme is the lifting of the veil. Okay, once the expedition discovers that the snow creature is real, any pretext of altruistic intentions of wanting to help people with disease-curing superplants are dropped immediately. Um, the objective immediately becomes to catch the creature and bring it back to America and sell access to it. The most cringeworthy scene in this movie was uh, when the beast had been captured and the local government inspector tells the American botanical expedition leader named Parrish that he can keep the creature and bring it back to America to exploit it and that their government welcomes scientific expeditions and other colonial exploitations. And in addition, they are arresting the Sherpa who actually uh, tried to take the law into their own hands by defying the parish's orders. Um, but of course, the parish, showing true American benevolence and justice, does not want to press charges. Inspector Karma, I won't prefer charges against these people. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Oh, forget it, forget it. So the runner-up cringeworthy scene was when Supra, who is the, um, the Sherpa guide, Supra and his men want to leave during the expedition to try to rescue Supra's wife, who has been kidnapped, and the parish threatens to kill Supra or any of his men if they don't, quote, obey orders. Like the very notion that the parish felt like the lives of Supra and his men and Supra's wife were less important than their business venture. Okay, so I'm giving this one a verdict of uh, watch it once. Because it's actually, um, it's kind of, you know, it's cringeworthy, it's, it's ridiculous, but that's fine. There's little parts, it's okay. I, I'm not commenting anything about when they bring it back to Los Angeles. That's a total shit show. Um, you know, they basically want to sell access to it, and it escapes. It's running around the sewers, and then they, they, they I think they shoot it or something, and obviously. Okay, so that's, uh, that's that. You can watch it once. Next one is Menace from Outer Space, 1956. This one was released November 1954 is what I have written, but that can't be right. Must be sometime in 1956. Okay, so this is, of course, another weekly serial of Rocky Jones' Space Ranger. 
So obviously, again, I didn't watch this one. Um, I'm sick of these ones. So again, if you really want to, you can go to um, archive.org, I guess, and try and locate it yourself. They're in the public domain anyway, so just check it out, see if you can find it. They really jammed a few of these Space Ranger collections into the um, the old sci-fi collection to get it up to 50 movies, I guess. Okay, next movie is Warning from Space, 1956. So this one is January 29th, 1956. The runtime is 87 minutes. And it's actually, uh, it's distributed by uh, Day Film, which is a Japanese company. I probably said that all wrong. Here's what moviedatabase.org said about the plot. The citizens of Tokyo panic when they see UFOs in the sky. The aliens are benign, however, and have come to warn of a meteor on a collision course with Earth. As the meteor approaches, the Earth's atmosphere begins to heat up and mankind must race to construct a weapon to destroy it. Um, okay, Wikipedia had some stuff to say about it as well. Um, it's a Japanese science fiction film released in January 1956. It was the first Japanese science fiction film to be produced in color. Um, in the film's plot, starfish-like aliens, it's true, we'll go into that, um, uh, disguised as humans travel to Earth to warn of the imminent collision of a rogue planet with Earth. Well, whatever, okay. As the planet rapidly accelerates towards Earth, a nuclear device is created at the last minute and destroys the approaching world. The earthlings must be stopped. We must make immediate contact and once and for all terminate their blundering. The islands of Japan appear best suited for our landing. Number one will be responsible for this initial penetration. Your mission is to reach their scientists. They are the ones to conquer first, especially the one called Professor Komura. So let's get into it here. Right off the bat, I mean, the irony that the only country in the world that has been bombed by nuclear weapons in an aggressive act by a foreign power uh, puts out a movie about having to save the Earth with nuclear weapons. Um, I don't know what to say about that. So here's my thoughts on the film. Um, did you ever see that episode of Yo Gabba Gabba where Moss Def stars as super mr superhero he sings a song to a frightened alien called starsky who is shaped like a human-sized star to try and gain starsky's trust don't worry starsky don't make a fuss we're here to help you you're safe with us so I think the aliens from the alien from that episode was um, influenced by the aliens in this film. So at the beginning of this film, there are grown men in star costumes. So when I say star costumes, I mean the five points, like the kind of cartoon star. Um, so and the star costumes have a large they have a large eye in the middle of the the, the body. Um, and they, they make this 
cryptic pronouncement um, on a spaceship about contacting a scientist from Japan. And then, okay, so a bunch of stuff happens after that. I get a bit lost. 45 minutes, fast forward 45 minutes, and the aliens sort of cloned a lounge singer um, that informs the scientists that a runaway planet is going to collide with Earth um, and that it can be stopped if they work together by creating a gigantic atomic blast in space to change the trajectory of the runaway planet. So that it's kind of bizarre. It, you know, it's it's an interesting notion, and I think this has come up in other sci-fi stuff. Maybe this is the first place it was. So it's kind of a cool idea. But as I said earlier, there's the irony that it's Japan putting out a movie about this. Japan, where Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Nagasaki were uh, bombed with nuclear weapons or atomic weapons. You know, and then they're putting out a movie about how, oh, well, these things can actually be used to save humanity. Okay, so one thing, though, as well, it was refreshing to see a film where the world is saved by a nation other than America. Overall, it's a kind of a shitty film. It's a, it's a little bit bizarre, a little bit slow. It's kind of hard to know what's going on. I mean, you get the basic concept. There's not much more to it than that. I would say to be generous, uh, what's the verdict? Watch it once. But you could also skip it. You could, this part two, I don't know, I gotta tell you, these movies, 11 through 20, you could pretty much skip most of these, but we'll get to that. So next one, The Wild Women of Wongo. Boy, they like these alliterative titles uh, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s and stuff. Okay, so this one's 1958, runtime 71 minutes. Don't know the budget, don't know the distributor. Um, here's what the moviedatabase.org had to say about the plot. So on the tropical island of Wongo, a tribe of beautiful women discover that the other side of the island is inhabited by a tribe of handsome men. Oh, how wonderful. They also discover that a tribe of evil ape men live on the island too. And the ape men are planning a raid on the tribe in order to capture mates. That's pretty straightforward. Um, unfortunately, at this point, I can't really remember if that's accurate or not. It sounds kind of familiar. Um, I, I had a lot of difficulty figuring out what the hell was going on in this movie it was it should have been a lot better um okay so the thing is the women it's right up my alley i like pinup girls the women from the tribe look like they've emerged from a flintstones episode but this is pre-flintstones they have these sexy prehistoric looking sleeveless mini skirt dresses and the leaders is animal print so they would make very foxy Halloween costumes. They look great. Um, but the film is so hard to get through. I think the audio was very bad, and the actual video quality is pretty poor, too. Um, and not to mention that I don't know what the hell was going on with the plot. It was, it was bizarre. It was hard to follow. So I had a really difficult time with this. I would say, like, um, this is kind of a skip it one, but I'm going to say watch it once. Um, and if you are going to skip it, at least go to, um, go to the crocodile goddess scene at 3130, um, for a good look at the women and then the dancing close-ups start at 33 minutes. Okay. So next film, oh, oh my God, 
the She Gods of Shark Reef. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? This one's uh, released August 1958. It's 63 minutes. I'm telling you, I couldn't even get through this one. It was atrocious. The first minute or so was kind of cool. These two guys try to assassinate these these other guys on like this dock, and then um, they swim away. And then one of the guys meets up with his brother, and they end up on a boat that crashes. And then they end up on this island with these beautiful women again. And um, they're kind of hiding the fact that they're on the run. But I wasn't I wasn't clear on whether they're navy guys, and they're just anyway. So the, yeah, one of them falls in love with one of the girls from the island, but then they're trying to escape. I don't know what was going on. It's uh, here's what. Um, Wikipedia had to say, or no, let's go to moviedatabase.org. Two brothers, one wanted for murder, are shipwrecked on an island inhabited by nubile young women who have amassed a valuable cache of pearls, I guess. Okay, Wikipedia. Uh, She Gods of Shark Reef is a 1958 B-adventure film directed by Roger Corman that was uh, partially filmed on location. Okay, it doesn't matter. Um, A young and reckless criminal. Jim stows away on his brother Chris Johnson's boat after killing two men interrupting his gun running. See, I didn't get that. I I remember that, but I didn't really know that's what was going on. Okay. As they sail out to the Sulu Sea, they are caught in a terrible storm and are shipwrecked off a beautiful island that is inhabited by a secretive all-female village of pearl divers. Okay. Though the lonely and beautiful women of the island are friendly and flirtatious with the two brothers, uh, the village elder queen is cautious and hostile, wanting the two off of the island as soon as possible. Chris falls in love with one of the island beauties, um, while Jim, being a wanted man, seeks to escape before the naval ship sent to rescue them arrives. Terrified of being recognized and executed for his crimes, Jim fixes one of the island's islander's broken boats and lets his brother and his forbidden love in on his plan. But before they can leave, the black-hearted criminal is overcome by greed and steals the islander's precious pearls, injuring a native in the process. Once out to the sea, Chris discovers uh, what his sibling has done and tries to stop him in a fight on some jagged rocks. Okay, that's fine. So yeah, I didn't I didn't get that far at the end. I, I like I, I must have tried to watch this one about four or five times, and I kept getting interrupted by anything, and I just I couldn't get into this. It just I didn't make it that far. I made it about I don't know forty five minutes through, so I didn't catch the end part. Um, also, a lot of the stuff they mentioned there, I didn't really get. That. I didn't know he was a gun runner. I knew they were they killed some guys at the beginning, but I didn't really get they were gun runners. That feels like if you had some notes on the movie while you're watching it, and you're like, oh yeah, this is what was happening. Like if they provided you with show notes or something. Um, okay, so here are my thoughts on this one. Uh, the audio is really bad, and the video is really bad. And you know what? These Roger Corman movies. I know he's. Uh, he's thought of as like oh he's the b-movie guy and all this but i think all the well at least most of the roger corman movies i can think of that i've seen are just shit they're the they're the worst of the the b-movies they're not they're not really that good 
Um, I don't want to make a blank statement. The guy has like 80 films or something, so there may be some that are good, but a lot of the ones that I'm seeing in these collections are not good. And I like B-movies. There's a lot of good ones, but um, not his. They're, they're pretty bad. There's another one we're going to get to later on in this episode, and uh, it's not good. Little, little, uh, little spoiler alert. It's not good. Okay, what's next? Um, we're gonna go. So the verdict is skip it for this one, by the way. Okay, what's next is Hercules Unchained, 1959, maybe 1960. I don't know. This is always tough with these movies. You know, this is one of those sword and sandal ones, and um, well, I'll just. Uh, Let's get to it. So my thoughts are, it occurs to me with these sword and sandal movies. Okay, so the questions I seem to have whenever I watch these movies are as follows. Am I confident in the actual name of the film, first of all? Because if you look them up on the moviedatabase.org or Wikipedia or just on whatever collection you bought them from, they're often all the names are different and you're you're like I don't I don't even really know which one this is because the plots all kind of sound like it's hard, like that you see the plot summary and you're like uh that might be the movie I'm watching uh, I'm not 100%. So that's one thing. Are you confident in the actual name of the film? Okay, in this case it is Hercules Unchained, I believe, so it should be okay. Next question. Can you identify the main character and do you know what his name is? <laughs> Um, now, in this case, the main character was Hercules, and I was able to identify him, which is great. I do think I, I have some difficulty in some of these movies. The sword and sandal ones are a bit, I mean, it's usually Hercules, right? But other than that, I don't. I think this is a pretty common experience with, with me in a lot of movies where I don't really know the names of any of the characters. And in some of these movies where it's not completely obvious what's going on, I don't really know what, what's at stake and what the central plot is sometimes. Okay, third question. Do you have a sense of what the main premise of the film is and what is at stake for the protagonist? Yeah, not always. In this case, I think I did, and we're going to get into that. Um, this one was uh, narrated uh, for a little bit, and it was dubbed into English, which is dubbed into English. is great. Okay, so the opening scene, a guy gets stabbed by some army guys. And then um, there's a bunch of guys on a trireme, or I say that, but it's really just a boat with a bunch of guys rowing. So I don't know. I, I called it a trireme. I don't know what it is. And then we get um, Hercules and his pals unload their stuff on an island, Attica, and we get introduced to his crew. And then they head out to Thebes in a covered wagon. Okay. So his wife is super hot. Uh, she has creamy skin, and she's ginger. She's wearing a really loose dress with no bra. Um, she looks good. Hercules is, he is wild, man. He is, he's like big and buff, and he has this absolutely incredible pompadoured head of hair. It is huge. His hair is huge and like puffy. It's incredible. Okay. Hercules fights a giant shortly after that. There's like a, on the way to Thebes, he, he has to get off the cart and he's, he seems kind of pissed about it. He has to fight this giant. All right. So that's out of the way. So here is the premise of the film, I think, is that he encounters outside of Thebes, he encounters uh, Oedipus in a cave. 
and apparently Oedipus gave up the throne of Thebes so that his sons could each rule for one year. But now we're at the end of the first year, and the son who has the throne is unwilling to give it up. Um, and the other son, he's like, hey, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in and attack you and, and try and take over the throne if you don't give it up. So Hercules is there to broker a peace between the two sons. And then I guess Oedipus or the son, whatever, agrees and says, look, you have six days to achieve this or I'm going to go in and attack the brother. And I got to admit, after this point, I got completely lost. I don't know what happened. All I know is various things happened and there was battles and stuff. And in the end, I guess it was successful or something. But yeah, that's where we're at. Um, so what's the verdict for this one? Uh, I'm going to say skip it. you got better things to do with your time. Okay. Next one. Uh, the next film is Teenagers from Outer Space. 1959 June 1959 Runtime 85 minutes budget Twenty thousand, distributed by Warner Bros. So let's just get the um, movie database plot summary here. A young alien falls for a pretty teenage Earth girl, and they team up to try to stop the plans of his invading cohorts, who intend to use Earth as a food breeding ground for giant lobsters from their planet. Yeah, that's that's a uh, that's fairly correct um you know that's that's pretty good that's pretty much what it is um okay so what are my thoughts wikipedia actually has a really a large write-up on this i'm not going to go through it but if you want to see a bit more thorough plot you can go there and check it out what are my thoughts okay my thoughts are what is it with lobsters do you know what i mean um, lobsters seem to pop up more than you would expect in philosophy. And I'm going to say philoso pop culture, right? Like pop culture philosophy, like, you know, Jordan Peterson, this type of thing. Um, so there's a post that I read. It's called Sartre's uh, Existential Lobsters. It's on a site called Blue Labyrinths from 2015. Uh, and here are some highlights from the post, okay? So in 1934, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, in an attempt to induce hallucinations for a book he was writing, decided to experiment with mescaline. And Sartre confided to Simone de Beauvoir, his longtime companion, that ordinary objects were morphing into various creatures like crabs, octopuses, and lobsters. And in the days following his trip, Sartre had a nervous breakdown. Du Beauvoir sent him to a psychiatrist, Jacques Lacan, whom Sartre would go on to form a long-term friendship with. And through psychoanalysis, Lacan and Sartre came to the conclusion that the hallucinations were brought on by fear of, quote, being alone and, quote, losing camaraderie of the group. 
Okay, so that's sort of an inward experience. Um, and it's not like a metaphor being used somewhere, like he was actually, uh, you know, hallucinating these things. So that's fine. But it does pop up in this philoso culture sort of genre. Okay, the next thing. There's a film in 2015 called The Lobster. Now, I didn't see it, um, but it apparently explored the absurdity and cruelty in relationships. And um, I put a couple links in the show notes to some nerds who are discussing it in detail because I guess it, uh, you know, like it was up for discussion quite a bit. So people seem to be, uh, it's very, uh, what do you call it, polarizing, I guess. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, Jordan Peterson, right? He uses lobsters in his pseudoscientific arguments. So the idea with Peterson, as far as I understand, anyway, I'm not a Peterson expert or I don't like him at all. Um, so hierarchies exist and some believe that they are a social construct that allows some groups, i.e. white men, to have power over other groups. So Peterson, Jordan Peterson, uses his lobster argument to, re to rebut that idea that hierarchies exist solely due to patriarchal oppression. Okay. So Peterson claims that lobsters also have hierarchies. He says that their, quote, brains run on serotonin. So the higher the lobster climbs up the social hierarchy, the more serotonin their, quote, brains make available. Peterson further claims that serotonin works in human brains in a similar way, causing humans to form social hierarchies. So for him, it's natural for us to have hierarchies, and they are not merely a social construct. You can read countless articles that debunk Jordan Peterson's shitty pseudoscience. I put a bunch of links in the show notes. I'm not going to do it on this episode. So finally, well, maybe not finally, I don't know. It could be mentioned a bunch of other places, but the main thing here is um, there's this philosophical idea uh, called The Great Chain of Being. And I put uh, a video, an article, and an essay in the show notes. So you can take a look for that if you want to. Um, here's a brief explanation of The Great Chain of Being according to a blog post in philosophytalk.org from October 2018 called They're Only Lobsters. And I'm quoting here. The notion that the biosphere is partitioned into ranks with humans at the top and every other organism at some inferior position. The rank that a being occupies corresponds to its intrinsic value, the value that it has in and of itself. The higher an organism is ranked, the greater its worth and the more consideration we owe it. We humans regard ourselves as supremely valuable. Indeed, as Immanuel Kant put it, infinitely valuable beings. So we have demanding moral obligations to members of our own kind, but less, if any, to the, quote, lower creatures that are ranked beneath us. So, in addition, the essay Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace from his essay collection of the same name pushed back on the great chain of being idea, citing the barbarism of the way humans kill and eat lobsters 
through the Maine Lobster Festival with its gratuitous world's largest lobster boiling pot. So I put a link in the show notes to the Consider the Lobster article from uh, David Foster Wallace and the Consider the Lobster Wikipedia entry on Wikipedia. Now, uh, I would go I would go read the article. It's pretty short. You know, it's maybe a 15-minute read or something like that, but it's pretty good. Um, and this notion of the great chain of being fits right into this movie. So, so what is so what does all this have to do with teenagers from space, right? Well, this film takes the idea of the great chain of being and it turns it on its head. Okay. Or rather, okay, so it turns the tables for humans and their place in the chain. So in the movie, aliens arrive on Earth with the intention of using it as a factory farm for their livestock, a lobster-like creature that will feast on Earth's native inhabitants. So in this scenario, man is no longer at the top of the chain of being. The aliens are. And more than that, man is at the bottom of the chain, even below the lobster-like livestock creatures. So beyond this um, notion of the great chain of being, which was very compelling, well, the rest of the movie was not that compelling. Um, One of the aliens doesn't see the creatures of Earth as unimportant, like his colleagues do, and he flees from them, and then one of the uh, one of his colleagues is sent in pursuit of him to kill him. So in the end, the compassionate alien sacrifices himself to save the inhabitants of Earth. So sort of interesting. I mean, what's the verdict on this one? I would say watch it once. Definitely don't skip it. It's worth watching. Um, it's got some serious cringeworthy dialogue. Report preliminary findings. Thor reporting. 42 saturation degrees and 96 volumes. Intermediate fluctuation in Marfan content. Derek reporting. Tridex mixer components ratio exceeding 7 to 1.4. Moore reporting. Diagonal adjustment reading resisting structural forms by 2.8.0 vernums. Saw reporting. Uneven cartoid levels intersect planes below 0.03. But yeah, it's worth watching once. It's definitely not a rewatchable. I, I would I would really consider reading some of these articles that I've linked to in the show notes. If you're going to read just one or just, just a little bit, then I would read David Foster Wallace's Consider the Lobster. And I would maybe read that blog entry on the great chain of being from philosophytalk.org. You don't need to watch the Lobster movie. You don't need to read anything by Jordan Peterson. For God's sakes, don't read anything by Jordan Peterson. And um, you definitely don't need to read the Jean-Paul Sartre article at the top. That's not really relevant at all. It just happens to be about lobsters. Surface readings register above minimum requirements. Morrow, go below and bring up the young Gargan specimen. Now the decision depends on its reactions. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Of what concern are foreign beings? Of none to you, Thor. Just as you were so unconcerned when you destroyed the small creature. So bravely. It was no more than an insect. But it had life. And that life you had to take to satisfy your endless hunger for killing. Silence! 
both of you. Next movie. Another clunker. The Wasp Woman, 1959. Yikes. October 30th, 1959, released. Runtime, 73 minutes. Budget, 50,000. Should have just given me the 50,000. Distributed by the film group, Allied Artists Pictures Corporation. Well, I don't know. I say that, but, you know, maybe it made a lot of money. I don't know. I just have the budget here at the box office, or the the budget of the movie. Maybe it made a few hundred thousand at the box office. Who knows? Okay. MovieDatabase.org. Quick rundown. A cosmetics queen develops a youth formula from jelly taken from queen wasps. She fails to anticipate the typical hoary side effects. Where are we getting these? Okay, I'm going to read from Wikipedia here for a little bit. Um, Okay, the founder and owner of a large cosmetics company, Janice Starlin, is disturbed when her firm sales begin to drop after it becomes apparent to her customer base that she is aging. Okay, so she's like, yeah, the, the, um, the face of the cosmetics, and then she's getting old, so her sales are going down. So Zinthorpe has been uh, able to extract enzymes from the royal jelly of the queen wasp that can reverse the aging process. Janice agrees to fund research um, at great cost, provided she can serve as his human subject. Displeased with the slowness of the results, she breaks into the scientist's laboratory after hours and injects... Uh, sorry, she breaks into the scientist's laboratory after hours and injects herself with extra doses of the formula. Zinthorpe becomes aware that some of the test creatures are becoming violent and goes to warn Janice, but before he can reach anyone, he gets into a car accident. That's not exactly accurate. And he is thus temporarily missing, and Janice goes through great trouble to find him, eventually taking over his care. Janice continues her clandestine use of the serum and sheds 20 years in a single weekend, but soon discovers that she is periodically transformed into a murderous wasp-like creature. That's just just a side effect. You just list that on the package as a possible side effect, and it's totally fine. Uh, Eventually, Zinthorpe throws a jar of carbolic... Okay, it doesn't matter. Anyways, he kills her. Um, So what are my thoughts? Oh my God, this is an incredibly boring movie. Like, incredibly boring movie. This is terrible. Another Roger Corman flop. Um, I'm not impressed with his movies at all so far that that I've seen on here. Um, so the summary on Wikipedia, fairly accurate, although uh, the scientist part. I It says he gets into a car accident. Uh, I don't know about that. He It shows him leave his lab. He It shows his legs as he steps out onto the street. And then it's implied that he gets hit by a car. So I don't think, I wouldn't call it a car accident. I would say he was either unintentionally or intentionally hit by a car. I think he was, again, I, I was I was having a tough time following the plot, but I kind of felt like one of the guys at the company was a rival and may have hit him with the car, but that could be totally off. But then why would he randomly get hit by a car? Like why, that's, that's weak plot. I mean, having him just, Hey, he just stepped out in the road and got hit by a car. Like, come on, what what is all that about? I think someone must have done it on purpose, in which case it definitely isn't a car accident, right? Okay. What do we got? Um, yeah, I would skip this one. It's real bad. 
It's real bad. Um, yeah, just it's so incredibly boring. Incredibly boring. One aside is um, there's a Columbo episode. And I think, what is it? Lovely but lethal. It may be season three. I'm not really sure. And it has um, that actress. I forget her name. Anyways, it doesn't really matter. And it's about uh, a woman who is in a similar sort of situation. She's the head of a cosmetics company and it's her face, right? Her face is the brand and she's older. She's super foxy, but um, she actually murders her younger lover who um, has stolen a formula that will make like her skin appear young and radiant, you know? And um, she kills him to get the formula that he is uh, holding over her and extorting um, extorting her with. So anyways, that, that's all. <laughs> Just interesting. It's sort of like another, it's like a subgenre, you know, like, like beauty queen, uh, not beauty queen, beauty company heads who are also the face of the brand um, dealing with becoming old and not as, quote, beautiful anymore. Anyways, it's not really that. Okay, so that's the end of that one. I would say skip it. It was junk. Next film. Last one in the uh, part two. So this is the 20th film of the Mill Creek sci-fi collection in my arbitrary order, which is by release date. Um, the film is The Incredible Petrified World, 1959. Released April 16th, 1960 even though I just called it 1959. I actually think it was made in 1957, but they didn't release it until 1959 or 60, something like that. Yeah, I'm going to read a little bit from the Wikipedia. Well, let's go to the moviedatabase.org page first. So when the cable breaks on their diving bell, four people find themselves trapped in a hidden underworld, underwater world. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's, that's kind of it. Yeah, they, they, there's four people and they go down in this diving bell and um, under the water and they're supposed to go really far and the cord snaps and... But somehow they don't die. They find that they're able to, that it's light outside the bell suddenly, which they didn't expect. And then so they get in their diving suits and they go out. And then they end up surfacing in like this weird underwater, underground, what am I saying? It's like a, a cavernous world, 
under the ocean or in the ocean somewhere. And it's, it's all lit by phosphorus or something like that. So it's bright in there. And then they wander around for a while trying to find their way out. And they encounter a man who is down there who would become trapped 15 years earlier. And, um, before they can escape, it's discovered that that man they found murdered his friend who was down there with them. And that man is becoming lecherous after the women. It's kind of weird. I didn't really, I don't know. I don't really know what the point was. But anyways, they get rescued. They send down another diving bell and uh, they rescue them. And that's it. Here are my thoughts on the film, though. So at the beginning, there's this really strange, pointless footage of a shark and an octopus fighting under the water, like a real shark and a real octopus kind of fighting under the water. Um, it's like for the first two or three minutes of the film. And I didn't really get that. I don't like, what are they doing? I, I guess they just did that because say hey, we have this footage. It's sort of compelling. Although now I would say it's gruesome. Like, I don't want to see a shark and a, an octopus, like trying to kill each other under the water. It's not very nice. Um, about 16 minutes in when they're in the diving bell and, and the thing, the cord snaps and they, they, they wake up from it after they, they're, they're shaking around and they all get knocked unconscious, but then they wake up. And when the one girl, Dale realizes that they're in the bell under the water and they're like, they're going to perish eventually because they're under the water and they're trapped. She starts to lose her shit and, uh, she's like freaking out. And one of the guys shakes her and then slaps her. What is with this, uh, this notion that a woman freaking out, you should shake her and slap her so she comes to her senses. I don't... Who who thought this was a good idea at some point? Oh, one of the really interesting things in this movie was they're in this diving bell under the water, and then when they escape the diving bell, they go to this underground cavernous area, right? But the gals are running around in like these fetching cashmere sweaters and dress pants it looks like they're on their way to a dinner party and one of the girls she seems like she's even wearing these kind of sexy dress panty capris like what is these outfits they don't have like rigorous climbing gear or, or i don't know something like or just you know their diving gear because they were going down in the water uh, they're wearing these weird cashmere sweaters. It just seems kind of strange. There's also some interesting stock footage of uh, Komodo Dragon at about 32 minutes through, which is, they just threw in there. They're, the Komodo Dragon seems to live in these caverns for some reason. They're they're wandering through the caverns trying to get out, and they, they come across this Komodo Dragon just hanging out. Uh, God knows what it was doing there. There's a really strange scene where... Um, things start to heat up between Dale and Lori. When I need your advice, I'll ask for it. Sorry. I didn't realize. You don't realize a lot of things. You probably never will. I didn't mean to intrude, Dale. It was just a friendly joke. Friendly? <laughs> well, you just listen to me, Miss Innocent. There's nothing friendly between two females. There never was and there never will be. All right, so what's the verdict on this one? Uh, I don't know. You can watch this one once. It was it was okay. If you can make it through the first eighteen minutes or so without turning it off, then you can you can watch it. The the, the first eighteen minutes or so was tough. 
I was having a really tough time because it was bad. There was nothing compelling. It was really just goddamn boring to watch. And then after about 18 minutes, I was like, okay, at least some interesting stuff's kind of happening. Um, and one cool part is when the cave dweller shows up, uh, the girl Lori has a scream and he's and the, the cave dweller guy is way in the distance and he's watching them. And uh, that was a good little scene. He reminds me of um, God Will Will Fort, uh, the character that he plays in The Last Man on Earth. So you can look that up. And uh, if you watch this movie, it's kind of funny. All right, so that's that's it for that. Yeah, I'm going to say watch this one once. You could even skip it. You could skip pretty much all these ones. But yeah, I'm going to say watch it once, um, and that will be it for that. So quite an unsuccessful part two um, to the Mill Creek Sci-Fi Collection. Let's hope part three proves a lot more successful. Um, there's a lot of junk in these part two movies. Um, I did overall, though, let's just recap... I did like seeing um, the snow creature was was worth it. Um, I'm going to say teenagers from outer space was worth it, and the incredible petrified world. Yeah, we'll give that a that was worth it. Um, the rest of them junk. I mean, you may want to watch parts of them or just check them out real briefly, but they were crap. Well, hopefully, part three will have some better movies. Tune in next week. Thank you for listening today. Check out the show notes for this episode or any episode on my website at ptpod.xyz. The show notes contain the links to all my sources and products that were referenced in the episode. You can write a glowing review of my podcast on iTunes or Google Play. There are handy-dandy links in the menu on my website at ptpod.xyz. And you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash pt pod the intro music for today's episode was sweeter vermouth courtesy of kevin mcleod at incompetech.com check out the link in the show notes Thank you.